The epistle for Good Friday is written in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, commencing at the first verse. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here ends the epistle. John chapter 19, starting at the first verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. 
Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece, from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. 
and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the, body le the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Please remain standing as I pray a prayer to Jesus Christ based on a hymn attributed to a 12th century reformer. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow? Jesus, you went to the cross for me. You died for me, even though mine, mine was the transgression. Yours the bitter pain. Show me then how to live for you, how to trust you, how to love you, and how to have my hope in you. Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Amen. Please be seated. I'm hoping the kids have some packs. If the kids want to count a word, tell me later how many times I said the word hope, then I'll be pleased to hear the answer. In John chapter 19... We read these words. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, his breath. Some questions then to begin with. First, why are we here? We're here because Jesus Christ died on a bloody Roman cross. And he did it outside Jerusalem in the year 30 AD, mocked spat on, flogged, and killed, his life snuffed out. But only for a weekend. Second question, what did the Jewish prophet say about the coming Messiah? The prophet Isaiah wrote of God's servant, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
700 years before Jesus. Third question, what has this got to do with me? The prophet goes on, but he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. What about yours? The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As St. Bernard of Clairvaux said to Jesus Christ, mine, mine was the transgression, yours the bitter pain. Or George Herbert, love that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Where can I find this information and explore it further? Well, the answer is take a Bible with you today. I want them all gone. Namely, if you don't think you can find a simple translation within two minutes of arriving in your front door, I want you to take one now and place it within two meters of your two minutes of your front door and then take some time to read it or perhaps even join our Alpha course which you'll find the details in the back of your orders of service. But in this Bible you read this word from the Apostle Peter who denied Jesus. Later he would write, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, Christ, for the unrighteous, Justin Moffat, to bring him to God, to bring you to God. Put simply, if Jesus didn't go to the cross, I would still be in my sins, as Jesus says, and therefore judged justly or hell-bound. But he loved me and gave his life for me. He took my muck, he took my stubbornness, he took my dark secrets and my open sins. He took the just wrath of God right there onto the cross and into the grave in order to snuff it out. In the end, it wasn't his life that was permanently snuffed out, but my sins were. And so now I can stand confident in the love of God. I can enjoy hope rising with his resurrection. But I get ahead of myself. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? How about this? Samuel Crossman, we just sang it a moment ago. 1664. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine. Never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whom sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Or if you're young, this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. I want to explore this with you this morning, and I want to do it with the theme of hope rising. This is the first part in a two-part series, the other one being Easter Day on Sunday. At its heart, the message of Easter is a message about hope, but not just any hope, as if any hope will do, but rather a specific hope that comes from God who made us and loves this world God sent Jesus to clean up our hearts and he raised him from the dead to show us that this hope is certain. It is substantial. It is a thick hope, not wishful thinking. With Jesus rising from the dead, we can be sure that true hope rises with him. But today I want to show you a simple truth that this hope is present even in the middle of suffering. Are you suffering now? 
I've often wondered why Christianity survives despite predictions of its impending death by elite pundits who feel like they can speak for the whole, who fail to understand Africa and China and South America and indeed our own society. Why is genuine Christian faith on the rise and not floundering like they say? One answer could be because God's in it. Another could be because people discover the meaning of love or the power of community. But another answer is that Christianity gives a plausible answer to the question of suffering. And our answer, the Christian answer, to this vexing question of suffering is not to deny suffering, nor to minimise it, nor to escape it, nor to live in contradiction to it, as, if, as though look on the bright side of life means anything. Monty Python were mocking us, you see. Suffering is inevitable, and you can't address suffering by simply pursuing your desires. It won't happen. The pursuit of happiness in the end can't be the answer. It's a shallow answer that produces a soft generation that doesn't produce genuine love and faith. The pursuit of happiness pursues holidays and experiences and the naked pursuit of pleasure, sometimes naked. And quite frankly, is often reduced to sex without covenant and alcohol without restraint. Both as attempts, really, to feel loved or happy. Suffering is inevitable and you can't live in contradiction to it as if it'll go away. We must chart a meaningful path to it and onto the other side. The Christian gospel proclaimed at Easter time and indeed every Sunday. The Christian gospel says at its heart that Jesus parts charts a path into and then through suffering he is my hope the christian gospel says at its very heart god came god saw god suffered god conquered if you heard he came he saw he conquered you forget that was rome and Rome did not rise from the dead. To those elites who pronounced the death of Christianity, to the ones who did it in the 19th century, G.K. Chesterton wrote this, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it has a God who knows the way out of the grave. I want to show you this by the one who knew his way out of the grave and hence was willing to suffer and go to the cross so three points to conclude uh, this morning, and these are on page 13 of your orders of service. In Jesus, I find hope rising. He came to rise above the injustice. He came to rise above the politics. He came to rise above the sin, but he came to rise above the injustice in the thick of power injustice. He came to rise above the politics in the thick of politics, not on the side of it. And he came to rise above the sin in the thick of sin. In other words, he trusted God even in the suffering. First, he came to rise above the injustice in the thick of injustice. In John 19 verse 4, you read these words, 
once more, Pilate, the, gov the governor, the Gentile, came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis of charge against him. I can find that he's done nothing wrong. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Echehom, behold the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, as soon as they saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify, the original outrage. But Pilate answered, you take him, you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate will be found weak. Jesus' death was an, an act of injustice. It was. Like every act of bullying. This one particularly fierce. Tried in a kangaroo court, which is governed by the mob, whipped up by the religious politicians, crucified for no crime. This was an act of injustice. And in many ways, it was not just an act of injustice, but the ultimate act of injustice, because as the narrative functions, this is God showing up. And look what we did to him. <laughs> this is humanity on one hand. This is what we do. We try to Squash God or anybody who challenges my right to rule my own life. This is humanity, but this is also God. On the other hand, this is what he does. He lifts us up even as we try to bring him down. But Jesus takes on the injustice to arrive above the injustice. He short circuits the whole cycle. In verse 8, Pilate heard this, that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. He asked Jesus, where do you come from? I don't get you. I don't get you. But Jesus gave him no answer, Isaiah 53. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize you're like a lamb to the slaughter? Don't you realize I have, I have power to free you or to crucify you as if? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. God wants this moment. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. God will deal with the injustice in his time. In the meantime, he takes it on and he rises above the injustice in the thick of injustice. But I get ahead of myself. That's Easter morning. Secondly, he came to rise above the politics because that's what's happening here. It's politics. We once hosted a meeting down at the Garrison Church uh, for the community of Millers Point, and Tanya Plibersek, the member of Sydney, came. And she thanked the Garrison Church for holding this particular meeting for her. We wanted to make it available for the community. And she stood up and she said, I want to thank the Garrison Church. We know that they are apolitical, she said, that the church is apolitical. And I'm sitting up the back, and I spoke to her afterwards, and I said, you should know we are not apolitical, we are merely bipartisan. If you look at the life of Jesus, it was political, but it just came from the side. Jesus wasn't playing the game the way politicians play the game. And for any of you who've been involved in politics, and I don't just mean in Canberra, I mean there's politics in the office, there's politics in church, there's politics in family. Jesus 
enter the thick of politics in order to rise above it. People don't think of the death of Jesus as a political thing, but it is. It's politics in the worst way. Two sides fighting for what they believe is best for the country. But in the end, it's bipartisan support for the troublemaker. It wasn't just that they didn't like him and wanted to hurt him like they were cruel. He was a political threat to the status quo. For example, he was claiming to be the Messiah, the king. At least he wasn't denying it. And what that meant was that Herod wasn't the king. The guy in the palace wasn't Messiah, the anointed one. He was acting like the Lord, which meant that Caesar was not Lord. He was proclaiming peace, which meant that Rome did not bring peace. The Pax Romana wasn't true. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, wrought by the blood of those conquered. But Jesus brought a peace that surpasses understanding, wrought by his own blood, freely given. That circuit breaking right, right there. Listen to the politics. In John chapter 11, the politicians recognize the threat. They say to themselves, what are we accomplishing? We're not doing anything here. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. We have to do something about Jesus. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. He said, you don't know nothing. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish at the hands of Rome coming to destroy the temple and our nation. John writes, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied without knowing it that Jesus would die for others, for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life, ironically. Listen to the politics. In John 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. It'll interact with this world, but it's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to present my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so Pilate seizes on this. You're a king then. Please admit it. It'll make it easier for me. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate retorted, what is truth? How can you really know? Francis Bacon, in the 17th century, what is truth, said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. Does that not sound like our era? He rises above the politics in the thick of politics. And lastly, and most importantly, he came to rise above the sin in the thick of sin. That's why he came. God promised in the Hebrew Scriptures that he would deal with sin. In Zechariah chapter 3, we read these words, God promising, I will remove the sin of the land in one single day. In Jeremiah 31, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's prophesied in the pattern established in the sacrificing of animals in the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. This bull, that goat, this lamb symbolizes the removal of sins from me. But it was only a shadow, as we heard in the epistle. As the writer of Hebrews says, those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins, and that's because it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Someone else is going to have to do that. But it wasn't that Jesus dealt with my sin in a lab. It wasn't the safety of heaven that God dealt with my sin, but in the thick of it, God dealt with sin to rise above it in his resurrection. He rises above the thick of sin, my sin. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, mine, mine was the transgression, yours the bitter pain. The Apostle Peter said, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And you know what that means? Confidence. Therefore, sisters and brothers, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, to be embraced by God, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, one of them, his name is Jesus Christ, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. This could be you this morning, taking bread and wine for the first time and having our bodies washed with pure water. Believe it and let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed because he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, this event, this Friday, means everything. There's so much pain in the world, so much suffering, so much injustice, so much politics, and so much sin, and we take our part and admit our own guilt. We'll do that in a moment's time before we come to the table. But we say this morning that your property, your nature, is always to have mercy, and you showed that ultimately, conclusively, powerfully, in the death of Jesus Christ for my sin. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Amen.